This is The Guardian. Today, they've put out their campaign videos and started their charm offensives. Now six candidates are vying to become Britain's next prime minister. As Boris Johnson was giving his resignation speech last week... Thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. Several Tory MPs were watching with intent, imagining themselves taking his place as Prime Minister. A number of your colleagues have actually said that they wondered whether you, as and when the time comes for a leadership election, might think about standing. I'll be straight with you, Robert. Yes, I will. This morning, the contest to succeed Boris Johnson has begun with the backbench MP Tom Tugendhat saying he can offer a clean start. Rishi Sunak has thrown his hat into the ring to replace Boris Johnson. Someone has to grip this moment and make the right decision. The Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, has also launched a bid for PM. Sajid Javid and Jeremy Hunt say they will help... The International Trade Minister, Penny Mordaunt, has become the ninth MP to enter the race to replace Boris Johnson. Liz Truss has launched her bid to be the next Conservative leader. Foreign Office Minister, Raymond Chisty, became the 11th candidate to declare last night. In the UK, when a PM quits, the decision on who replaces them isn't always the public's to make. We don't automatically have a general election. It's the ruling party and its members who decide on a replacement. Every candidate knows they need to win over their colleagues in the Conservative Party. And then, when the number of candidates has been whittled down to two, it's the party members who decide on who gets to lead our country. Some might say this is no time for novices. I think this is no time for steady as it goes sinking into decline. This week, each candidate has been setting out their policies and trying to build a sense of their public persona. And to some extent, that means saying what they think about Boris Johnson. Is he flawed? Yes. And so are the rest of us. A leader who has deeply divided the Conservative Party. I wouldn't want to damage anybody's chances by offering my support. Today, Conservative MPs will vote in the second round. The race is down to Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, Liz Truss, Kemi Badenoch, Tom Tugendhat, and Suella Braverman. By the 5th of September, one of them will be our Prime Minister. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the battle for the Tory leadership. Peter Walker, you're a political correspondent for The Guardian and you've, of course, been covering the Conservative Party leadership contest over the past week. 11 people put their names forward initially. Were any of them a surprise to you? The big surprise to everybody, possibly even to his own family, was Raymond Chishti, who is an MP for Kent. It's quite a leap 
from being a newly appointed minister, just appointed in the last few days, in fact, to prime minister of this country. How are you going to make that leap? Well, Ben, you're absolutely right. I think for me, it's about being frank with the British public. Yes, you know, many people would have not heard about me. He's been in the Commons since 2010 and has only just become a junior minister literally last week. So he's not incredibly high profile. And he's now dropped out having received zero backing because in the initial section, you can't even nominate yourself. So that was a surprise to everybody. Mm-hmm. I think the sheer number was not so much a surprise in the sense that all the other ones people thought there's probably a chance of them going for it. But the fact they all decided to do it, the, the right wing almost of the party is particularly crowded. Basically, anybody who thought they had a chance, and at least one who must have known they had no chance, have all decided to go for it. On Tuesday, the nominations closed and the candidates had to show that they had the support of 20 of their colleagues to be considered, which left us with eight candidates. Then yesterday, there was the first round of voting, which narrowed those candidates down to Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, Liz Truss, Kemi Badenoch, Tom Tugendhat and Suella Braverman. What's going to happen next? At some point this afternoon, there will be um, a second voting round. Under this round, only the bottom person will be knocked out. However, this is a moment people often start to drop out and you know commit their support to other people. Um, and then, as necessary, next week, we'll have as many rounds of voting as it takes to get us down to the final two. And those final two will then go up before Tory members across the country who, who pay to be part of the party. They're going to get a vote. Why do the Conservatives have this multi-round process? Well, these are rules that were introduced under William Hague in the late 90s. I mean, because the Conservative leadership thing, I mean, it's like all parties, it's changed an awful lot. It, it, it used to be, you know, this famous thing of literally having the men in grey suits would come and tell a leader their time was up. But then all the MPs, the senior MPs, would go into a room and a leader would kind of... Uh, Emerge. Oh, a bit like electing the new pope. You know, the smoke signal goes up. Kind of, but probably less open than electing the new pope. Um, but under this system, they wanted to have a balance between having a leader who the core party membership back, because these are the people you're asking to go out on a rainy Wednesday and knock on doors. They have to support them. But equally, as arguably the Jeremy Corbyn Labour experience shows, if you have a leader who's very strongly backed by the membership, but the MPs don't necessarily support them, then it can make things a bit tricky. So you have to find this compromise of someone who the MPs like, but the members also want. Those members are predominantly male, aged over 60, white, and live in the south of England. So they represent a small proportion of the population. And they're going to be making a decision on who our next Prime Minister is. It is. This is one of the quirks of the Prime Ministerial system that the UK's got. It's not like a presidential one where, or even like a mayor where everybody has a say on who the person is. You vote for the party. You know, you vote for who your local MP is and you vote for it on a party basis. And a Prime Minister can only stay in power if they have the confidence of the MPs in their party around them. So the final two, you'll have this process which will take slightly longer because no one knows how many Tory members there are. There's been between 150,000, maybe 200,000. And over a period of weeks, there'll be uh, hustings events around the country. There'll, there'll be TV uh, interviews and that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, the membership ballots will be sent out. The 
process overall will take about six weeks, but the voting down by MPs is the quick bit. Is there a chance that the decision won't go to the members? Could MPs just throw themselves behind one candidate? The only way that could happen would be what took place in 2016, where Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom were down to the final two. And Andrea Leadsom gave a slightly disastrous interview to a newspaper where she made some slightly ill-judged quote about being better qualified because she was a mother. And obviously, Theresa May is not a mother. And that went down quite badly. And Leadsom, who was, I think, most likely going to lose anyway, decided you know, A, I've messed up a bit, but B, we're in this Brexit crisis. We need to get this done as quickly as possible. There is a very, very strong feeling amongst Conservative members this time. They do not want this to take place. And it probably won't. But it's partly because the field is so open. There's no one obvious who should take over. So I think you can be pretty sure there will be a member's vote this time. Peter, can you talk us through then the front runners in this race? Let's start with Rishi Sunak, who was, of course, the Chancellor until he resigned in dramatic fashion last week. He's someone who people have been saying for several years now has had his eye on being PM, right? I mean, it's pretty clear. He's a strategist and he's been building up his own brand for a long time. COVID you know, whilst obviously a disaster for the country and the world, was in a paradoxical way quite useful for his personal image and personal brand, partly because he was in the good position for a chancellor of being able to give out a huge amount of money. Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. Government grants will cover 80% of the salary of retained workers up to a total of 2,500... He was supporting people who couldn't work. He was supporting businesses. He was giving out billions of pounds, which for a chancellor is the most popularity-inducing thing you can do. And that did his um, appeal a lot of good. But in terms of plotting, yes, it was well-known he wanted to take over. And he was also notable that when he launched his leadership bid, his Ready for Rishi website, the domain name was registered in December last year, right. which was when all the party stuff started to come out. He could obviously see the way things were going. So what message is he pushing in his leadership bid then? Well, to an extent, he's a bit constrained because he's been Johnson's chancellor for a reasonable amount of time. And he's not quite the continuity Johnson candidate, but in his launch on Tuesday. I want to talk about Boris Johnson. He was at pains to kind of lavish praise on Johnson and say Johnson you know, has many good qualities and things like that. Boris Johnson is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And whatever some commentators may say, he has a good heart. And it's also the case in economic terms. Obviously, he's the person who introduced the economic policy. He's proposing less of the same. There's been this quite chaotic tax-cutting arms race amongst a lot of the candidates. But Sunak has been the person who's been saying, you know, yes, of course, I want to cut taxes, but we have to do it in a sensible way. So his pitch is that he's the kind of grown-up in the room. We need to have a grown-up conversation about where we are, how we got here, and what we intend to do about it. If he made it to the final two, would there be anything about either his policies or about his kind of persona that would stand against him? There's quite a few things. I mean, 
only a few months back, he was seen as having completely damaged his brand with the revelations that his wife had non-domicile tax status in the UK, which meant that she didn't pay UK tax on her earnings, which are very, very big earnings. And his wife is the daughter of the founder of Infosys, the kind of now multinational IT company. And she's worth a huge amount of money. I mean, her stake in the company is hundreds of millions of pounds. And plus the fact he lives and exists in this quite rarefied kind of jet set circle. So he himself is independently very wealthy. He was a hedge funds banker um, before going into, uh, into politics, made a lot of money. He also had a US green card, which is this partly tax, partly immigration thing, which he kept on as an MP and even as chancellor too. But I think for Tory members, that could be quite potent, this idea of someone who just lives in this private jet world who won't be able to connect to voters. Another candidate who seems to have been working towards this moment for a long time is Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. What kind of image would you say she's been trying to cultivate of herself in the lead up to this contest? She's been very explicitly trying to portray herself as Thatcher 2.0. I mean, she even posed in a tank, which is very oh, yes, much this kind that. of Thatcher image. She's this kind of no-nonsense, tax-cutting, truth-telling, economically liberal, slightly culture-warish. And she is quite similar to Thatcher in that she very, very much does have this genuine belief in kind of low-state free enterprise stuff. She's very much that part of the Conservative Party. As Prime Minister, I will lead a government committed to core Conservative principles. Low taxes, a firm grip on spending, driving growth in the economy, and giving people the opportunity to achieve anything they want to achieve. And if she does get through to the final two, then that could be a very potent mix. You know, she'd be quite tricky to beat if she's in the final two. Well, she's been backed by Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nadine Dorries, who, you know, at, at this point have been Boris Johnson's kind of closest loyalists. The candidates that we select, and uh, for me it's, it's Liz who I'm going to back, will continue with those manifesto promises and will continue to deliver for the government and for the Conservative Party moving forward. Jacob? Well, thank you. Yes, I'm also going to be backing Liz Truss. Um, as Nadine said... And Doris and Rees-Mogg did this little press conference, didn't they, on Tuesday, in which Doris said, you know, Liz Truss is probably more of a Brexiteer than we are. Uh, I'm very aware that she's probably a stronger Brexiteer than both of us. She is a... How do her politics compare to Sunak's? Well, it's a bit of a weird one because she looks like she's getting quite a lot of the Brexit vote, even though she was a Remain supporter in 2016. But, you know, certainly on Brexit, she's seen as the kind of tougher one. She has been Boris Johnson's kind of lead Brexit person for the last few months. So she's very heavily involved with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Another front runner, probably posing the biggest threat to Sunak and Truss, is Penny Mordaunt. She put out a campaign video <laughs> that got a lot of attention. Not for the right reasons. Yeah, for people who haven't seen it, can you explain what happened? We're starting the process of electing a new leader of the Conservative Party. Her the party campaign video, if you've not watched it, you kind of really should. 
Because when you watch the first 30 seconds, it does genuinely look like you're watching a parody from like a comedy series because it's these sweeping drone images of the British countryside and British people. And there's this very fruity actor's voice, you know, going, Great Britain! And with, um, I vowed to be my country playing in the background. <laughs> these are the values of our country. Freedom, fairness, courage. And Penny Morden herself doesn't appear till like two and a half minutes into this three minute video. Our leadership has to change. It needs to become a little less about the leader and a lot more about the ship. I'm Penny Morden. And, and I'm ready to you know, the problem with it wasn't that it was a bit cheesy and bad, even though it was. The problem was she included a lot of people in it, you know, obvious close-ups of them, without saying they should. Um, so she had Johnny Peacock, the Paralympic champion, in there, and he tweeted, you know, I really don't want to be in this. There were various other people. There was Dame Sarah Gilbert, the person who kind of helped produce the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. She was in there. And during a period when The Voice was explaining how great the Conservative Party was, it focused on Joe Cox, the Labour MP, who was murdered in 2016. Conservatives do not have a monopoly on good people and good ideas. We are the most successful party in our nation's history. And there were objections, I think, from the family of Joe Cox, and that was taken out. Our greatest heroes have been the living... Morden is a slightly strange one because she's a great campaigner. She can be quite a formidable kind of figure to debate. And she's, you know, been Defence Secretary, albeit fairly uh, briefly. She's been around for a long time and she can kind of appeal to all parts. She is from a reasonably modest background. She's attracted a lot of working class voters. But at the same time, if you talk to people who know her and deal with her, her political philosophy is a bit vague. They do sometimes say, I'm not quite sure what she stands for. What could go against her in this race? One of the issues that she might potentially face is that she's quite socially liberal on cultural things. She's particularly strong on um, LGBT plus rights. That trans men are men, trans women are women. And I think that's what she believes. But she sent this slightly defensive Twitter thread saying, you know, I've stood up for women's rights, I've done this. And it didn't explicitly rescind what she said, but it basically said, you know, I'm not this Guardian reading liberal you might fear. Who are the other candidates from the more centrist wing of the party? You've got Tom Tugendhat. What they see is that I'm here to serve the country. I'm not here to serve anything else. I'm here to bring a return of service to the United Kingdom the government serving the people, the Conservative Party serving its members. Because this is not about petty politics. This is not... Who is the only remaining candidate who um, has never served as a uh, minister. He is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And he's kind of centrist. He was very, very much anti-Boris Johnson. And he's framing himself as a kind of fresh start. We need leadership with a renewed sense of mission. Leadership that sees beyond divisive politics and delivers results. I mean, he's an army veteran and his pitch is basically, I've not been in the cabinet, but I've been a leader of people. I can do it. You know, he's probably not going to get to the final two, but he's positioning himself in a way he can then throw his support behind someone else from the centrist wing of the party, which if they win, could get him a big job. The other candidates are more right wing. Can you tell me about them? 
we have Suella Braverman. She was promoted to Attorney General relatively recently. I mean, she's much more of a culture warrior than Johnson. There's only one thing that can turn Britain around, and that's the British people themselves, if only the government would allow them to do it. And, you know, she's again, she's one of those people who wants to kind of cut the state, you know, make the size of the state not as big as it is now. A lot of people who back her say that she's, you know, a lot more interesting than you might think. But she can sometimes say slightly wayward things. She got doorstepped by ITV the other day. I think we need to look at some of our government budgets. I think we spend too much on welfare. Um, there are too many people in this country who are of working age, who are of good health, and who are choosing to rely on benefits, on taxpayers' money, on your money, my money. And she was saying that um, the size of the welfare state is too big and there's a lot of people who are kind of on welfare when they don't need to. And that's really not the case. I mean, anyone who ever claimed universal credit or disability benefit or anything like that, it's really, really rigorous these days. But she tends to she raise a cultural thing. She kind of grabs at it. And then there's another candidate, Kemi Badenoch. So Kemi Badenoch is one of the kind of real culture warriors. If we don't stand up for our shared institutions, for free speech, due process and the rule of law, then we end up with a zero-sum game of identity politics which only increases divisions when we need to come together. Um, and, and she's actually done quite well so far. She's attracted a lot of attention. I mean, the people who support her really think she's great. But I've also in the past spoken to some Conservative MPs who say almost literally unprintable things about her. She has very, very strong views and is not afraid to express them. And that can be this very refreshing thing. I tell the truth. I fight for change. I stand up for people and I stand up for the causes and the country I love. She could be one to watch. I mean, if she was to get to the final two, which would be a big ask, then she's really, really appealing for the Tory membership. You know, her backstory is very interesting. She grew up in Nigeria, in the US, in the UK. Um, uh, she's very, very much on this small state you know, libertarian wing of the party. And I guess the one downfall she's got, she's kind of defined herself mainly so far as being this culture warrior. As you look across all of these candidates then, what would you say they tell us about where the Conservative Party is right now? I think they tell us a couple of things. One of which is the Conservative Party is in this quite fractious and febrile state. You've got Rishi Sunak, who is kind of not quite a shoe in to get the final two, but seems most likely. He's the most organised. But beyond that, there is this slight kind of rats in a sack feel where everyone is scrabbling for that other place. So the Conservative Party is not in a strong place despite having a majority of 70 ish. It's quite fractured, it's quite split, and that really shows it. But the other thing, too, I think it shows that the Tory party is coalescing around positions which are quite actually populist hard right. That if you were to go back even 10, 15 years in time, the idea of sending potentially legitimate uh, asylum seekers who come over the channel in small boats will not even get the chance to claim asylum in the UK. They'll be packed off to Rwanda where they won't even get their claims processed. They will just basically have to stay there. That's the sort of thing that potentially some people in UKIP might say, but otherwise you almost have to go to the far right to have people saying, deport legitimate asylum seekers. Yeah. And every candidate has backed that. There's been, you know, I don't know if everyone has explicitly backed it, but all the ones who've been asked have said, yes, I will carry on with it. Peter, there are some desperately important issues 
that the next prime minister will have to deal with the cost of living crisis, which you've mentioned, the climate crisis, the war in Ukraine. But ultimately, unless we have an unexpected dropout at the last minute, the candidates are going to need to win over the members who will be voting on them. And so with that in mind, what are the main issues that this race will be won on? In terms of the MPs, it seems to be tax cuts are the big thing. But in terms of of the members, no one really quite knows because there's no list of who Tory members are, however many there are. There is some polling done of like representative samples. And it is perfectly possible that once you get to the members and the hustings and you get questions from members, then a lot of this cultural stuff might start to drop away. And people might say, you know, I'm 65 years old, I cannot afford my energy bill. What are you going to do about that? Every Conservative member likes tax cuts. But but it's, it's again, it's one of these interesting things with these races in two parts. You know, we're very, very much focused on what the first part is, what the MPs want. And then the second one is longer. It's a bit more thoughtful. You have hustings. They have to answer questions from members or they won't win. And they basically have to listen as much as anything too. And, and that can change an awful lot. Coming up, will Labour take this moment of turmoil for the Tories as an opportunity? Peter, on Tuesday, Labour tried to bring a motion of no confidence in Boris Johnson. He blocked it. Since then, the Conservatives have said they will table a confidence motion, although it will be aimed at the government as a whole, not specifically at Johnson. Why did Labour want that vote in the first place? The reason Labour want to do it is not because they think they're going to get rid of the Johnson government and cause a general uh, election, though I think they would quite like that. I mean, fighting against a disgraced Conservative party that hasn't got a leader would be quite good for them. But what they basically want to do is to kind of dip every Conservative MP's hand in the kind of Johnson blood. They want to have every target seat being able to have a poster saying, your MP supported Boris Johnson in the confidence vote. Because Boris Johnson is... His reputation amongst the country is really not very good at the moment. You know, apart from everything else that's taken place, he's this lame duck PM. No one really wants him to stay. And yet you kind of have to have a government under constitution. You have to have a prime minister in place at all times. So the Labour ruse was just basically to force the Conservatives to do something they didn't necessarily want to do. And Keir Starmer earlier this week was in Gateshead giving a speech called delivering a fresh start for Britain. Which is slightly like the Tom Tugendhat slogan as well. Strangely similar. You know, there is a moment here potentially for him as Johnson's on the way out to say, this is the alternative that Labour could be offering. You know, come the next general election, this is what we could be offering. What did he lay out in that speech? Well, the strange thing is he didn't actually set out all that much um, and when Johnson had announced he'd stepped down the previous week, um, Starmer did this kind of impromptu press conference. And I was there and I asked him the question, you know, polling shows a lot of people don't quite know what your policies are. General election might be a couple of years away, but it might be coming very, very soon. Is this not the time to lay out your policies now? And his answer was, you know, we already have set out quite a few policies, but apart from the windfall tax, which the government has now taken on, I think it's fair to say a lot of voters don't quite know what they are. 
to be electorally successful, you have to have your kind of trademark policies. They haven't quite worked out what those are yet, and they kind of need to get cracking a bit. So it looks like by September the 5th, we'll have a new prime minister. It feels like a long time away. <laughs> but they'll be taking over what is a fractured party. What will the next Tory leader need to do to get that party and the public back together again, to get them on side? Well, there's, I guess, three things in all. They'll have to, first of all, look unified and competent because one of the most difficult things for a party to shake off is this idea of incompetence and splits. The voters don't really like that. The second thing they're going to have to do is very much policy focused is cost of living. They're going to think about what they're going to do because they're elected on September the 5th and within a matter of weeks, people's much higher energy bills are going to start dropping. And there's going to be people who are not going to be able to heat their homes. There's people who are not going to be able to eat. I was listening the other day on the radio to the uh, elected Bristol mayor who's saying Bristol is preparing public buildings which will be heated for people to go to during the day to stay warm because they can't have their heating on during the day. You know, this is a crisis which is potentially greater than any since the 70s. They're going to have to get stuff going on that. And then in terms of keeping their party unified, they're going to have to look like at least a potential election winner. The moment it looks like the die is cast and you're never going to win, then things fall apart around you. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Peter Walker. If you go to theguardian.com, you can follow the results of the second ballot today on the Politics Live blog. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Ruth Abrahams. Sound design was by Axel Cacoutier. And our executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.